Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie Hayek is a cultural thought leader, generational expert, and social agitator who deeply understands society's evolutions. She founded and leads two companies, Global Mosaic and Z-Speak, with a passion for navigating the cultural movements shaping our world. Anne-Marie and her team of experts have advised the world's largest companies, organizations, governments, and presidential candidates for more than 25 years. She is the author of the upcoming book, Generation We, The Power and Promise of Generation Z, the seminal expose on the largest and most powerful generation now coming of age in America. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think they're going to save us all. Um, so it published already. So it, it's already out. Cause it, it says published pub- two months ago. August okay, 17th. Yeah. yeah. Cause it says right here publishes and uh, people don't realize as I schedule these months in advance. So sometimes things change. So I'll definitely link that up so people can grab a copy. So Anne Marie has a graduate degree from the university of Chicago and previously served as SVP and VP of Global Strategy at BBDO and Leo Burnett. What's BBDO? Those are both large advertising marketing firms globally, right? Which is where I was before I started uh, Global Mosaic, which 19 years ago now. So I've been an entrepreneur for almost 20 years. It's been a while since I worked for the man. (laughs) I cannot do the entrepreneurship route. I had my own company at one point in time and I just wasn't for me. I need somebody to tell me what to do and I do it and that'd be the end. Like (laughs) I am not, I'm not, I'm not good at like the, you know, I want to be, I now want to be a professor of psychology. Um, I'm in my master's uh, program right now. And then I'm going to be applying to PhD programs. Um, near me, I live in Connecticut and, uh, I like, I like the academic field because you know, you have expectations. It's not chaotic. You know what you need to do. You know how things go. I mean, yes, students could add a little chaos, but yeah, it's very structured. I like structure. I I imagine you're a student of psychology every day doing what you do, speaking to people, right? That's, that's what you're doing now. It's just translating that from a podcast format to a classroom. That's what I said to um, my thesis advisor. I said, ironically, with my podcast, I've been doing what I want to study for a very long time. I just didn't realize it until recently that there is a connection there. So the Generation Z, I just want to say, I've been saying for a while, I think they're going to save the world. Like, <laughs> I really do. <laughs> because they're, they're so, I mean, for the most part, this is generalization. Obviously, there are outliers. They're so open-minded. They have their, their finger on the pulse. Like they are like change makers. Like they were, they're teen, like, well, I mean, they're a wide range from like teens to like early uh, to mid twenties that, you know, they're just doing it. They're not afraid to just, they're not like, oh, well, only people that are older do this. No, they're like, I'm doing it. I don't care. I just, I have to say, I love that you said that uh, like your whole book is about Generation Z. 
they're total change makers. And the median age of a Gen Z right now is 17. 17. Think about how young that is. Yeah. And yet for the last three years, we have been seeing them. I mean, I think about three years ago, up until about three years ago, none of us really paid that much attention yet. There were just, you know, there were kids and teens. We didn't necessarily pay as much attention to them. And then 2018 were the park, were the, uh, the, was, was a school shooting in Parkland, yeah, the Florida, yeah. where Emma Gonzalez and those kids stood up and called BS on our whole establishment and organized March for our lives one month later in DC and organized 2 million people. And then immediately on the heels of that came Greta Thurnberg, yes. right? And I then the her. school walkouts began. And then the youth of the world organized, organized the climate strike in the summer of 2019, 7.6 million people. And then on the heels of that, Black Lives Matter, 77% of Gen Zs reported participating in Black Lives Matter by the end of summer 2020. And I mean, we just see them showing up and showing up and showing up and showing up. And at such a relatively young age, they are, they have such powerful voices and such unification. Yeah. And they know how to manipulate social media to get their message out. We're like, some of us, like we're familiar with social media. I'm a millennial. I'm an elder millennial. <laughs> so I'm in the upper part of, of the spectrum, you know, like the, the early eighties babies. Um, but I, I know something about social media, but nothing to the extent they do. They know well, how to get the message out there. They know how to like spread it. They know how to like, you know, just show up. I love them. <laughs> Well, it, well, and you know what I love, I love that. So I'm, I'm a Gen X and, but I love that you're a millennial and that you just said that because I think that so many of us think of millennials as being super digitally savvy, which millennials are relative to Xers and boomers and the younger millennials. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, but I mean, this is another thing that I've been talking a lot to companies about and speaking about is you know, millennials were the median age of a millennial was 19 when the iPhone came out yeah, and 22 when Instagram came out. So we think about millennials as the Instagram generation, but again, the average millennial was it was 22 when Instagram came out. So Instagram has been more of something that millennials really came to utilize right in their twenties and beyond, yeah. or, or maybe for some of the younger ones in their teens, but versus for Z's, I mean, the iPhone was created before many of them were born. By the time they were in kindergarten, all these apps already existed. So they literally just grew up with access to all this stuff. And and it makes them super digitally savvy. Mm -hmm. It makes them really, oh, just brilliant at organizing and mobilizing as we talk about. I mean, the numbers that I just threw out there with the kinds of mobilizations they're able to create. And I think, you know, we think about what was the last generation that really mobilized in mass. And we think about the boomers in the sixties, for example. Yeah, the civil rights. Right, the civil rights. I mean, all of those movements were so important in the sixties. And yet when you really look at the numbers and the data, the largest anti-Vietnam War protest in nineteen in the in the sixties was in nineteen sixty nine in D.C. and that was an estimated five hundred thousand people, only five hundred thousand people. And then you think of the numbers that we're talking about, right? Where Z's are organizing millions of people on a regular basis behind mm-hmm. these these causes and bringing so much awareness around yeah. it. So it's just it's absolutely extraordinary, super so, super super powerful. 
to age myself, uh, I had Facebook when you had to have a college email to have Facebook. So <laughs> most sure. people don't even realize that was a thing, but it was a thing. <laughs> so Facebook is my, my place. I like to go. Yeah. Like I never, I mean, I have an Instagram I use it occasionally. Um, I have a Twitter and that was, that's really for me to see news and then go and look myself for the actual like information and not the bias, but Facebook, I love because I've been using it for a really long time. (laughs) You were, you were such an early, you were such an early adopter. I was an early adopter of Facebook. I have a hard time letting go. Yes. So I, yeah, I just love the book. I want everybody to grab a copy. I need to grab a copy, um, <laughs> and check it out. Well, I mean, thank you. Yeah. Gen Z. I, I just, I, I can't agree with you more. They're change agents. My oldest daughter is 18. Like the thing she knows and she's aware of that when I was 18, I had no idea <laughs> about. Absolutely. Their awareness is extraordinary. And the other thing is your daughter on TikTok. I mean, she's used yes. to, she's 19, 18. so yeah. 18, 18. I also have an 18 year old and a 16 year old daughter. I have two daughters and, uh, and they're both on TikTok. Right. And, and it's, you were talking about Facebook. Facebook is, Facebook is definitely older millennials and Z's and boomers. Right. And then a lot of younger millennials or Instagram. And then for Z's it's, it's TikTok. I mean, it is 90 plus percent of Z's are on TikTok. Right. And What's what you probably know then from your daughter is the way that they connect with each other on TikTok is extraordinarily mm. different too. Because when we when we open up a Facebook or Instagram feed, we see who we follow, right? We or we see maybe we see sponsored content or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. But when your daughter opens up her TikTok, she lands on what's called a for you page. You might have seen it. I don't know if you've been I, on I don't TikTok have TikTok, no. <laughs> and it's, but anyway, the algorithm is different. So they actually are crowdsourcing these viral videos, 15 second videos that get the most likes, you know, in the last 24, 48 hours. So what it means is that these Zs are opening up TikTok every day. And instead of just reinforcing their echo chamber and the people that they follow, they're seeing the short videos and the stories of other Z's all over the country and even all over the world that are trending, right? And it might be a silly dance video, but it might be like a black youth in Chicago, right? Talking about an encounter that he or she had with the police, or it might be a trans youth somewhere who's talking about the experience of coming out and what that's like. And so it creates this incredible exposure to diverse perspectives Mm -hmm. and, and life experiences in a way that we never had at that age. I mean, like one of the, it sounds super silly, but, but in my mind, like the equivalent for us would have been if every morning when we came down for breakfast as a teenager, imagine as a teenager, you came down for breakfast every day and there were like 10 teenagers that you didn't know that were sitting around your breakfast table and they were all just there to tell you their personal story, what it was like for them to be 16, you know, wherever they lived and whatever their identity was and whatever they were exploring and struggling with and whatever. And so this is what Z's have. So it creates, it creates this incredible sense of shared empathy and unity. And you mentioned earlier, open-mindedness, like open-mindedness because they're exposed to so much, right? It's like, it's like the kind of foundations of prejudice or foundations of 
of um, division, right, is usually lack of awareness, lack of exposure. And they have all this awareness and they have all this exposure. And I think a lot of times people say to me, okay, really, what can a 16 or a 17 or an 18 year old like your daughter know about the world? Like how much perspective can they have? They haven't had a lot of lived experience. And I say, well, maybe they haven't had as much lived experience, but they have had exposure to so mm-hmm. much, not only what's happening in the world, but also to so many of their diverse peers and, and yeah. perspectives. And they engage in that discourse across a much broader range of, of perspectives and ideas and positions on things than, than we tend to as older generations, where we do yeah. tend to isolate ourselves into our echo chambers more so, not only on social media, but even in real life, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the great powers of Z's. I think with Gen Z, like they have created this environment for the most part. Again, like I said, there's outliers. I know because my aunt has one outlier Gen Z and I'm like, I've seen the, the pumpkins they carved and I was like certain political affiliations. Um, and I'm just like, how? how does that exist in Gen Z? But, you know, it does. But I feel like there's space, right? They hold space for each other to be able to be who they are. And because a lot of people are like, why are there so many transgender and non-binary youth? That didn't exist before. No, it did. But there's a space, right? There's a space yes. to connect to each other, but also share with other people in a way that is safe for them to do where like, we didn't have that growing up where there was a space where we could connect with other people like us, like how we identified. Um, and so I think that that makes a huge difference and that's why they are so authentic in who they are. I love it. That I think you're exactly right. It's not necessarily the incidence of being non-binary is higher than it was for previous generations, but there is this space. There's this space for people to explore authentically who they are and not just have to default to the conditions of their birth. A lot of times in a lot of the conversations I've had, um, people ask me, okay, what's like, what's really the deal with pronouns? And, and I just say, you know, we need to take like 10 steps back because the pronouns are important, but the pronouns are just one tiny part of what I like to call this whole identity revolution, which is basically Mm -hmm. Z's are saying, we all have the inherent right to identify how we want to in the world. And that should be free from any of the conditions of our birth. Yep. So whatever, whatever sex parts I was born with, that doesn't have to mean anything in terms of how I want to identify from a gender standpoint. Maybe I want, maybe I was born with girl parts, but I, I feel that I'm more masculine. I can do that, you know, and who I'm sexually attracted to same with race and ethnicity or zip code or ability, you know, these are pushing so hard to establish this value Mm -hmm. that we all get to be who we want to be in the world and show up as we want to show up in the world. And, and pronouns are just a small part of that. It's just an invitation at the beginning of any meeting or whatever to say, Hey, I am giving you. I'm, you know, I'm inviting you to tell me how you, how you identify and how you'd like to show up and how you'd like me to, um, speak to you, you know, and think of you and see you. And that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. We didn't have that same invitation growing up. Yeah. No, we absolutely did not. And before we move on to more of your personal story, I have to know what got you interested in this. 
Like what got you? <laughs> well, I love, um, I love how you ref- how you referenced that what you want to do next is be a professor of psychology because I just love I love and so believe that we're all on this human journey that just continues and that should continue our whole lifetime, right? And I also loved how you said, you know, you didn't necessarily see all the connective tissue before maybe between the podcast and what you want to do next and this graduate work that you're doing. And I feel like for me, I've always had a pretty strong sense of self and kind of lean into my passions and what I just felt uh, in my heart. And, and it, it isn't until you get older that you realize that those things are connected, but it's not mm-hmm. necessarily that you see the end destination, right? So from the time I was super, super young, I was just a student of, of culture and a student of humanity. And I just loved to read about how different people lived in different parts of the world and how they thought and what they believed and how they dressed and how they spoke and all of those kinds of things. And then I went on in my 20s to work as a, really as a cultural anthropologist and business strategist for a lot of big companies. And then when I started my company 19 years ago, Global Mosaic, it's a cultural consultancy. So it was all about helping companies understand culture and cultural movements and trends. And as part of that, was understanding generations, right? So generations, I would be the first to say, we're all individuals. We all are individuals. So hate to silo people, force them into boxes. That's not my goal at all. But the generations are an instructive way for us to kind of look at how humanity is moving forward, right? Mm -hmm. And how we're progressing and how each kind of cohorted generation of people have been raised in a world that continues to evolve and how that influences how we think and what we believe and how we view our role in the world and all of those kinds of things. So I've been working with generations for a while. And then, and then much as you said, I mean, in the last couple of years, Gen Z, boom, they're everywhere. I'm the parent of two of them. I started having clients ask us to do work to help them understand Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And so we started doing research in this space. And I think for me, one of the things that I found, and I wonder if you have had this feeling as a, as a mom too, knowing, knowing your 18-year-old daughter, that I felt like a couple of years ago when we started doing research and we really looked at everything that had been written or researched or that existed out in the world around Gen Z, and there was a really superficial narrative around them that really minimized who they were. Because I think as a culture, yeah. we tend to, tri- to trivialize youth. You know, you do a Google image search of Gen Z and you just get pages and pages of pictures of teens staring at their at their phones. Like they're, they're tuned out. They don't know what's going on. They're totally tuned in, as you mm-hmm. know. It's actually through their devices are totally tuned in. Or we hear about their cancel culture. They're just angry and trying to cancel everybody all the time. And they're not. They're trying to engage us in critical discussion. They're trying to help move us forward. They're asking the hard questions that they feel a lot of us older generations have become complacent about and aren't really willing to have as many hard kind of across the aisle uh, conversations about. And so I just felt compelled to tell a deeper, more true story that honored this generation. Yeah. And so we spent the last couple of years doing research with literally 10,000 Zs across the U.S. and um, including some Z's globally. And 
I hired a team of 18 to 23 year olds to work with me on the research and on the book. So their, their heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears is in every page of this book too. And we created a book that we're all so proud of because we feel like it really tells the story about this generation and who they are and why they are the way they are and what they want. They're not just angry. They're not just blaming us older generations for everything. They have really good ideas and really good thoughts and they're trying to engage us. So the book is an invitation for us all to engage with these young folks. I am, uh, and seeing the change that it has developed with Gen Z, I am real fascinated on what's going to happen with Generation Alpha. (laughs) Right. So I have an 18 year old and then I have a 12 year old. So they're definitely Gen Z. Um, My 10 year olds are on that cusp. So like nobody's really defined where that cutoff is. So I'm like, I don't know if they're Gen Z or Gen Alpha, but like seeing like how connected Gen Z was and the change that they're doing. And then considering they're going to be, they might end up being parents of Gen Alpha because these generations span quite a, uh, quite a bit. I know millennials and Gen X tend to be the parents of, you know, Gen Z. And I feel like we're becoming more open-minded, right? Like we're not quite to Gen Gen Z level, but like in my household, we're not teaching gender stereotypes. And like, if my son wants to pee, he identifies as a boy. He was born, he was he was, I, he was assigned male at birth and identifies as a male. He wants to wear a pink shirt. Cool. Like, dude, go for it. I don't care. We, uh, him and his sister have to clean as part of their chores. My uh, spouse is teaching them how to cook. And he was like, when you guys get big enough to be able to like reach the stove and it be safe, both of you are going to cook like a couple nights a week. So like, we're kind of shaking it up as millennials with our kids but like when they start having kids, holy moly, it's going to be like, uh, uh, people are just going to have their minds exploded at, as uh, how much change it's going to be with parenting with Gen Z. Like, I just, I can't even imagine. And I Ab- love it. Absolutely. Well, and I, I love how you describe your son because I don't know if you saw, but in uh, the cover of Vogue magazine, the December 2020 issue was Harry Styles on the cover in this really lacy Gucci ball gown. Okay. So yes, it was a beautiful spread and great interview with him. And here's the thing, right? He identifies born as a male identifies as he, him identifies as being heterosexual. So, you know, he's not gay, he's not trans and he can wear a lacy Gucci ball Mm -hmm. gown because guess what? gender norms are dying you know anyone can wear whatever they want to and we actually are working with a with a with a new sustainable inclusive fashion company that's just being built right now in California and and it's been really fun because we've been having all these conversations about just because gender norms are going away doesn't mean everyone's going to move to the middle and live in this place of androgyny right right it's actually, it's like this explosion of self-expression where, where we're exploring femininity, exploring what the new, less toxic version of masculinity is. Right. And, and femininity is available to anybody and masculinity is available to anybody. It's just, it's not limited based on your sexual parts or even your gender identity or anything, right? So it's, 
there's, there's going to be a ton of self-expression. And I think, I wonder if your daughter shopped this way, but I know my daughters will go into a store like Urban Outfitters, which still has a section that is more kind of female identifying or more male identifying, but they just shop the whole store. They don't care. They just dispense with all of it. They'll go into any section of the store and try on jeans and shirts and pants and sweatshirts, whatever they want. Um, And they just don't, they just, they just don't, don't default to whatever. This is like, you know. Yeah. No. um, The male section or female section or anything. So I have twins who are 10 um, and one's, one's a girl and one's a boy they were they were assigned those sexes at birth and they still identify as this um and they will I'll just be like here's the kids section and they'll just wander around just like they don't care they I mean I've always been a parent it's like you don't have to shop in the quote-unquote like section that's supposed to be for your gender, like you can shop anywhere. So they will, they'll just wander in and out like of, cause they're usually connected sections and I just watch them there. Can I, can I try this? Not sure. Try whatever you want on. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, I find that with them, but I also find that with my oldest daughter, she likes to, uh, mix things up and, you know, sometimes she dresses more masculine, sometimes more feminine, sometimes a mixture of the both. And she just doesn't. Yeah. I, I do see that where my kids are wandering in and out. Um, so you, you said you have two Gen Z children. One just recently went off to college. Am I right? Yes. She's a freshman in LA right now at LMU, Loyola Marymount. So how uh, is that? How's that transition been for you? I know my daughter uh, graduated high school last year and she moved out um, and she is going to go to college. She decided, cause we, we've always said like, if you don't want to do something that requires college, don't go to college. Cause it's expensive. Um, <laughs> and uh-huh. she, she didn't want to at first, but now she wants to get into film. And um, so she wants to go to like a film school, but you know, you have to like get those general educations out of the way and stuff. So uh, she's going to start at a local, local to her. She moved an hour away, community college. Um, So I would love to hear your perspective of what it's been like to have a child leave the nest. (laughs) Uh, You know, my biggest, I don't know if anyone else who's listening had this experience. I had the most unexpected, it hit me at the most unexpected moment because I think because of COVID, she kind of missed the last year and a half of high school and senior year. And we got to spend a lot of time together and she was so ready to spread her wings. So even though it was so hard to let her go, I think actually COVID in some ways made it feel even that much more right. Like, oh, thank God she gets to actually go and spread her wings and do this. Right. But then a couple of days after I came back from moving her in LA, I went to the grocery store and that is where it hit me. I lost it at Trader Joe's because I was walking around and for 18 years, it's been, oh, Isabel loves bananas. I'll pick up. Oh, no, Isabel's not at home. Oh, look, Isabel would love this new Oh, Isabel doesn't live with us anymore. Oh, you know, and I, and I just, I was fighting back tears the whole time. And at one point I just, I just lost it with tears running down my face in the middle of Trader Joe's. So it was the most unexpected place. I never would have expected that that's what would have hit me. And, you know, in a (laughs) very public place like the grocery store, but in, in general, in general, I have to say that 
uh, well, it's actually funny. The book, the book was supposed to launch in June and okay. then, uh, and then I pulled the launch date back because our whole team was working like around the clock to get this book edited and it was just too much. And I, health is really important to me and important to all the people around mm-hmm. me. And we don't always do a perfect job of that, but that's definitely the goal. And I just said, this is not, our health is being compromised. We're all feeling stressed. So we're going to push launch date back. So as it turns out, the book launched four days before I moved here to LA. So oh my there, gosh. Was, there was so much happening all at the same time. And in a way, in a way that was good because she was moving on and kind of continuing her human journey. And I felt a little bit like I was continuing my human journey. And as much as I missed her, I had kind of my own new baby as well, Yeah, that being the book. And, and I had this little personal story that for some reason, it's this little thing, but it has just never left to me that when she was actually in, I think it was like, maybe she was going into fifth grade or sixth grade or something. And it was like a parent student orientation. And, you know, the kids are just hitting puberty at that point. <laughs> and I remembered that, I remember that the teachers at this school orientation were trying to make the point to the students that like, they're going to be changing a lot in these couple of years, but that's okay. Like we're all changing all the time. And so as part of the introduction, all the students and all the parents had to go around and say, name one way they were different now than one year ago. And And the kids, like these fifth and sixth graders had no issue saying, oh, you know, I learned how to do a backflip. I learned how to do whatever. All the parents struggled. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know what, they didn't know what to say that described any way in which they were different than one year earlier. Or maybe they would say something like, well, I got bifocals in the last year. And I thought, this is the (laughs) most freaking sad Like we as parents should always, anybody, any human should aspire to be able to say, hey, here's one way I'm different than last year. I tried this. Maybe I failed, but I tried it. I learned this. I did this. I went here. I, you know, and even with writing the book, I'm 51 years old. I started writing the book at 50, right around the time I turned 50. And I have written a lot of articles. I've always loved to write. It was one of my favorite things to do as a kid, write pretend screenplays and then cast all the neighborhood kids and all those kinds of things. But writing a book, a book is a big deal. And yeah, you know, I woke up every morning. The hardest part about writing that book was waking up in the dark and cold and solitude of COVID and motivating myself to get up and write. And that inner bully that showed up, got up every single morning with me and said, who are you to write a book? Who are you to write a book? this isn't, you can't write a book. This isn't going to be any good. And, and again, the voice didn't go away. It got worse after about six months and the voice yeah. started saying, well, now, now you've wasted six months of your life. Right? <laughs> you know, and it launched, it launched on Amazon. And after four days, we hit number one bestseller in a couple of, had, wow. in a couple of categories, which I'm so proud about. And, and to me, it's just, it just says this book for me was very much a passion project where again, it's not about me. It's more about using my position and privilege at this point in my life to be able to create a larger platform for these young people and their Mm -hmm. story that I wanted to tell. So what that just says to me is that the world really wants to understand these young people, wants to engage with these young people. So I was so thrilled, but that, uh, you know, that was, I know that now that it ended up being well received by the world, but that, that was a really long, long year where that inner bully was ever present, ever present. 
Yeah. Oh, I feel you. So um, right now, as I mentioned, I'm in a master's psychology master's program because I didn't feel as prepared for a PhD when I when I got out of undergrad, but also my husband's uh, career might have like moved us someplace. And now I'm like, if you move, I'm not moving. I'm, I, I'm in the middle of like, I have a thesis advisor, I have all these things. And so I have to look up PhD programs and man, does that imposter like come up and be like, ah. you're, not, you're not worthy to apply to these places. Cause where I live in Connecticut, we're talking about heavy hitters. We're talking about like Yale, yes. Harvard, like <laughs> Brown, like these places where I would have never even considered, but like, I only have, I, I, I whittled it down. So my, um, my interest is social psychology and particularly stigma and prejudice and bias that, that sort of realm. And so my thesis advisor was like, well, look up all the programs within, you know, a, a, a decent, uh, you know, I, I did it within three hours of me. Um, because I, I feel like it still might be a heck of a drive, but I, I think I could figure it out. Um, and we could move closer at some point in time. Uh, and, and she was like, then you have to go and look at these programs and look at the professors that are part of these programs and see if there's any that are in the realm of what you like, because they're going to pick people who are in, have interest in their interests, right? Because literally you're helping them with the research while you're yes. And <laughs> So I like whittled it down. I think I have like eight on my list and I'm like looking at this list and I'm like, oh my God, we're talking Harvard and Yale and Brown and University of Connecticut and stuff like that. But I'm just like so nervous. My imposter is like, who are you to be applying to these schools? And we all have that. We all have that and we need to banish it. And actually that is one of the biggest things that I've learned from, from Z's is they are just not afraid to be bold. They are not afraid to use their voices and they intentionally seek out the largest platforms. They seek out the largest platforms. They, as we started this whole conversation, they mobilize millions of them to show up in DC. They, they, they protest in front of the UN. They, I, I mean, they intentionally seek out the largest platforms because they, aren't afraid. They aren't afraid. And they know that that's how they're going to make the biggest impact. And that inspires me because I feel like Z's actually helped me to see that I was playing too small, that I had access to larger platforms. If I just banished that inner bully, you know, and this book is an example of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I've learned a lot from Z's. One of my favorite quotes is that Marianne Williamson quote about I don't know if you know which one. I actually have a, I have a, uh, I have a vision board over here that I put together when I was writing my book. And here I'll show you. This is my, this is, this is my vision board here. When I was in the editing phase to help banish that inner bully, I put together this vision board. Oh, of, I love that vision board. You need to send me a picture the, when we're done so I can put I'll that in the show notes because nobody I can, can see certainly, it. <laughs> I can certainly send it to you. But this is, this is the quote that I was referencing that is the Marianne Williamson quote, which has been one of my favorites for a long time, but was especially apropos during the writing of the book. And it goes, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Mm. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant? 
gorgeous, talented, and fabulous. Actually, who are you not to be? Your plain small doesn't serve the world. And it goes on to say, right, that when you allow yourself to be big, it gives other people license to do the same. And I just love that. Your plain small doesn't serve the world. Play big, right? Serve the world, inspire others to do the same. Yeah. So I love it. I love, I love Megan. Those are the places on your list. That's fabulous. I don't have a choice about that. <laughs> I'm, I am. What did, what, what did my thesis advisor say to me? She's like, you are uh, geographically limited uh, because I mean, I have kids. I'm not like the typical grad student. I'm older. So I have kids. I have a spouse. I have limitations on like, where can I go? So I don't have a choice if I want options to not apply to these places, but I'm like, I just want to like, I like it just thinking about it makes me nervous and I want to throw up. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. We all do. Everyone who's listening to this right now is nodding along with us. We all do this to ourselves. We're our own worst, worst. I remember I do a lot of hot yoga. It's kind of my thing. It's where I go and I breathe and I let stuff go. And it's just, it's like a just a godsend to me. And I remember one day the yoga instructor was talking about, you know, one of the basic fundamentals of yoga is the idea of nonviolence and challenged us to think about, to think about where do we hold the energy of violence? You know, where Mm. in our lives do we hold any energy around violence? And I remember thinking during that yoga class, as I was moving at first, I thought, no, I'm, 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 I'm doing the anti-violence thing. I'm open-minded. I try not to be judgmental. By the end of the class in in Shavasana, I realized I'm violent toward myself. I have the most violent energy toward myself. You know, I judge myself. Mm -hmm. I question myself. I beat myself up. And so I'm introducing that energy of that kind of thinking toward myself you know, and as long as I continue to do that, then I let that energy be alive in me, you know, that's, that's what I need to let go. That's the last bit I need to let go. If I really want to, you know, be inspired to think about living a life that's really rooted in, in, you know, no violence. So it's, it's really, it's fascinating that relationship that we have with ourselves, especially as women, I think as women, you know, there's, there's science and data that confirms this, that we do it more to ourselves than um, oftentimes than, than people who identify as male do. Yeah. I mean, they trigger it in us. I swear. Like sometimes I, I had a, a male professor today. He's my academic advisor, I guess. I thought I had a different one. And so when he sent out his email to everybody and was like, Hey, we all have to meet before you register for classes. La, la, la. I emailed him back and I was just like, I'm confused. I thought this professor was my academic advisor. Like, um, has this changed? Like, um, do I still need to meet with you? Cause we already met and created my plan. And he was very snarky back to me. And I'm like, I don't know if it, if it's a gender thing or if it was like, um, because he thinks that I'm the typical like student age. And I, you know, sometimes I find even in the academic field, like they can be kind of like talked down to students because they're a lot younger. And I was like, I came downstairs. I said to my spouse, I'm like, 
I am a 35 year old woman. And this guy is talking to me like I'm a kid, <laughs> but it was like internalized. Right. Like, cause then I was just like, should, do I have the right to be angry about this? But I, I did. <laughs> so, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And he was stupid enough to CC the, uh, the professor that I thought was my academic advisor. And I had, I explained why that mixed up happened. Cause it was actually on my acceptance uh, letter, like that she was going to be my advisor. And she goes, that should have never changed. That should have never happened. I'm so sorry that happened to you, Megan. And I'm like, there you go. I was right the whole time. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good day. <laughs> Yes. Yes. You know, you got to wonder, like, is he talking to me that way because I'm female or is he talking to me that way because he thinks I'm a lot younger than I am? And then you start to like it gets in your head and you're just like. Absolutely. And then there's the whole thing like you just don't let somebody make you feel small. Right. You just don't let them do that. Right. You just have to have control of that in your mind. But it's so much easier said than done. Yeah. Because it just feeds that inner bully when someone treats you like that. Oh, when, so real. When the other professor confirmed that I was on the right track and that that should have never happened, like to me, and I was like, boom, that's when I, <laughs> <laughs> I still have to meet with him, but whatever. Um, so, <laughs> anyways, um, I love this. Our, our discussion went different than I thought it was going to, but it was great. I love your passion about Gen Z and what they're teaching us. And I think we, I think we can learn a lot from them instead of just looking at them like Tide Pod eaters and TikTok challenges. A hundred percent. There's so much more than that, Megan. Oh my God. There's so much more than that. Yeah. And, and even if people just want to, you know, go to our website, you can download the first chapter for free and just get a little taste for it. Um, but there's such a great story. There's just, there's such an important story about these guys. And, um, and it's just started, you know, again, we, we really didn't hear much about them into the last couple of years and they're still relatively so young. And I just think moving forward with every month that goes by, they'll become stronger and stronger in their, in their presence, you know, and in their impact uh, in our, in our world. I mean, they're just, the eldest are just starting to enter the workforce, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. they just voted for the first time. And that wasn't even, that was only, you know, the, the eldest third of them in 2020. So the coming impact of these guys is it's just starting, man. And they've got, again, they've, they're, they're so, all the things you said at the beginning, they're open-minded, they're thoughtful, they're intentional, they want to engage, they want to have these conversations with us. I think there's so much that, I mean, especially coming out of the last couple of years, right? Like right. <laughs> I think all of us have to, right? Where we're sitting right now at the end of 2021, if anything, we need more engagement. You know, we need more discourse. We need to have more conversations with each other. We need to be open-minded to, to different ways that we can progress through a lot of the challenges we're living through right now. And here's this young generation just coming on the scene and entering adulthood as we're at the apex on so many of these issues, right? Yeah. So we I need always, to invite them to be part of that conversation. I always say like Gen Z is not afraid to call out their mama, their grandma, their racist uncle. Anybody. <laughs> They're Anybody. willing to just be like, listen, your train of thought is so off and here is why. <laughs> like they just, 
I love them. Um, so as we wrap up the podcast today, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? I love it. I, I actually really liked best. I loved our whole conversation, Megan, but the last part of the conversation where we were talking about not being afraid to be big in the world and to banish that inner bully, because, you know, for me, for me, I have been running a company for almost 20 years. You know, I, I had been putting things out in the world that would be considered quote unquote successful, you know, mm-hmm. not a book, but all kinds of other stuff. And yet that inner bully just never went away. And I could have just kept doing what I was doing and doing our client work. And I am, I'm so proud that I took the leap to do something big at 50 and 51 and write a book and put it out there and banish the bully. And I think that we all can live probably bigger than we think that we can. And then we're giving all these other people around us permission to do the same and also live bigger. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. My journey wasn't easy. I'm a single mom, you know, there was a lot to balance. Um, but I just think we're all capable of so much more than we even imagine that we are. And we're our own worst enemies and putting up those roadblocks oh, to get there. So, so just <laughs> do it, man, go for it. Apply to those grad programs, you know? <laughs> That, that goes Try for everybody else. Do heart. all the things. Yeah. Do all the things. Do what's in your heart, man. Do what's in your heart. Keep growing. Don't be afraid to give it a try. You know, I love it. I'm really, 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 really grateful for the last um, couple of years, all the adversity aside and really proud of, of you know, of, of the risks and and the trials and what I've learned and been able to put out there. So, so thanks so much for talking to me. It's such an honor to talk to you. And I just, I love that I was able to share the, the more human journey of it too, you know, not just talk about the book, but why it's so important to me. And this just larger human journey that I'm on and that we're all on, right. And we can support each other. Yes. um, Along, along the way. So thank you for that. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.